Moms, happy Mother's Day to you. So thankful for you and encouraged uh, by just your ministry and care and glad that you're, that you're here with us this morning. And I do want to just echo what Rebecca shared just a moment ago. Uh, be sure to get one of those gift cards after the service for Meridian Coffee. You can take that there this week and get a drink of your choice. And they don't just have coffee drinks, so if that's not your thing, uh, there's other beverages and, and ways that you can just be encouraged there. But uh, we want to just bless you and let you know as a church family how much we love you and are grateful for you. So be sure to get one of those. Pick one of those up after the service this morning on your way out. Well, have you ever wondered why, why these other people here in this room go to, go to this church? Maybe just look around for a moment, see some people that you may know or maybe not know, and, and, and especially if you've been here for a while, if you've been here for a handful of years, have you ever looked across the room and seen somebody and you go, what are they doing here? Wait, that, that doesn't sound exactly, you know, appropriate. I don't mean it like you, like that, I know that sinner. I'm like, they're a terrible person. Why do they show up? Like, what are they doing here? I, I'm so surprised to see them in the church. I don't, I don't mean it that way. I just, I just want you to think about who's here in the room, even in this moment this morning, particularly the people that you don't know well. Just look, look. okay, look at each other. Some of you are afraid to. You can, your head can move on a swivel here for just a second. Eyeball around the room. And see, and ask yourself this question, particularly the people you don't know. What purpose do they have in your life? You're in the same room at the same time, the same moment in human history. And I think that means something. So, so what, what are they here for? What, what place do they have in your life? Particularly think about the people that are different from you. Maybe who aren't in the same uh, age demographic that you would be in? What, what purpose do the older people that are here in this room have in your life? If you're a younger person, you're like, why, why are they here for you? What, what do they have to do in your life? If, if you're a little bit older, what do the younger people have to do with you? And what purpose do they fit towards in your own life? What do the married people have here? The singles what purpose do they have in your life? Those with children, those without children, perhaps the empty nesters. What, what purpose do they have finding themselves into your life? Or, or the other way, those, those families with small, small little children, pre-Ks or infants, you know, what, what could they have to offer you in your own experience of God and in your life? What, what, what do the teenagers here have for you? What could that be? The question I want us to get at is, why do the folks that are different from us, why are they here? Why does God gather us together? That's the title of my message this morning, and I think this is a good question. I want to tell you about Cecile. Uh, Cecile is a woman who is a member of a church that I used to pastor back in California. And during our season of life there, uh, Cecile, we knew Cecile and her husband, Steve, and their family, and they were a great family had a couple of adult children uh, while we were there, a few uh, teenagers, one was in early college. And Cecile had a perspective about life that I want to commend to you today. Cecile believed that it was important to always have people in her life that she was discipling, people that she was pouring into and investing and helping along the way. And I also believe in experience that Cecile was, thought it was important that she had people in her own life that were discipling her. So one of the things that she would do is she would reach out to uh, women in the church that she really didn't have to. 
She was under no obligation. The elders didn't come to her and say, Cecile, you're required to do this, and if you don't, you're in big trouble with us. None of that. She just, out of her love for God and out of her desire to see people grow and be like Christ, she, she was motivated to do this. And so she'd reach out to these younger women in the church, particularly younger women who were recently married or, or had really small children. They were just kind of in the front end of their marriage and family life and trying to figure things out. And, and she, she cared for them. She, once a month, would have this group of women over to her house, and they'd do a cooking project together. So Cecile would teach them how to bake or um, cook some sort of dish or, or meal uh, in that way and train them up in that and, and have, have some time in the Word and the Scriptures together and just encourage and disciple this group of ladies in our church. Uh, certainly my wife was a beneficiary of Cecile's discipleship. I, by virtue of the meal that Stephanie learned to make, also became a beneficiary of Cecile's discipleship in our lives. And that was just a way she gave herself to see others grow up in Christ and, and mature, to, to, to walk with Jesus well in everyday normal things. And that's what I want to point out for us, that we have for one another. I think the question is always worth asking, who are you discipled by? So who's, who's investing in your life? Who knows you well? Who's helping you walk forward with Jesus? Who's, who's encouraging and exhorting you along? Who are you being discipled by? And then also, who are you discipling as well? Who, who if I could put it in this language, who is the, the Paul in your life discipling you? And who is the Timothy in your life that you are discipling? I think this is one of the reasons that God designed the church to be multifaceted, multi-ethnic, multi-demographic, diverse, like a human body. He designed the church so that we can help each other grow. The church isn't designed to be the same demographic of people, the same group of people in the same age and stage of life, experiencing the same troubles and problems and issues so that we all can't figure it out together. God gives us one another so that we grow in Him, so that we become more like Christ, so that we're, we're shaped. And, and the areas of need that you have may not be the areas of need that someone else has, but it might be the very area of wisdom that someone has for you and help. This morning I'm going to challenge us about our relationships within the church. And I want to encourage you to look at the members of this church. I want you to see one another. And I want you to see one another as those people who you can be discipled by and those people who you can disciple as well. If you have your Bible, open it up to Luke chapter 1. Amy, thank you for reading God's Word for us this morning. Luke chapter 1, verses 39 to 56. And I want us to see in this passage the reason why God brings us together. We're going to use this passage and look at it to see the benefits of being in a discipleship relationship, in that experience of having someone disciple you, but also being a place where you can disciple and help someone else grow. Now, this story here in Luke's gospel, the very first chapter, so at the beginning of Jesus' story, this story here is about two godly women that God is using to advance his mission. He's using two godly women to advance his mission in the world. And he, we intersect the story at a singular point in their relationship together. It's a display of God's profound work in the world. And this story here illustrates for us three benefits of being in relationship, in these discipling relationships with one another. So I want to draw these out for us this morning. The first benefit for us of being in a discipleship relationship 
why you need to be discipling someone and you need someone to be discipling you is because it is in that relationship that we experience God together. It is through that relationship that we experience and know and see what God is doing. We, we grow together in Him. We experience Him together. Now, this is the infancy narrative of Jesus as told in Luke's gospel. Luke himself, as a historian, as a, a disciple of Jesus, as a faithful doctor, he is concerned with giving a reliable account. And so he says this at the very beginning of the book. He is giving a reliable account of the things that have been accomplished among us so that you and I, as readers of this, may have certainty concerning the things that we have been taught. Luke goes to painstaking detail to, to lay out the truth of what Jesus has done, what he has accomplished on our behalf, so that as you and I read this and receive this and see Jesus here, we are more and more confident in our faith, that we grow in our faith. So, so he is setting up the story of Jesus and his life with giving the background details around Jesus' birth. This is kind of the prologue, if you will. Luke wants to show us that Jesus' birth was a fulfillment and display of God's activity in the world to accomplish his faithful purposes and plans. So God sets up here in this first chapter what, what we might call a preview of coming attractions. Uh, maybe if you think about it this way, this is a little bit of a teaser or a trailer to wake up everyone to what God is doing to see his work in the world. And it's a familiar plot line to Scripture. What God does in Elizabeth and Mary is something that is an indicator. It's a sign that God is at work. In, in this, he, he gives us a clue on what he's doing. So, so God sends an angel. He comes to an old, barren, childless woman, and, and he promises to her, and he tells her that she would conceive a child with her husband. He makes this amazing promise. And, and this woman is Elizabeth. God comes to Zechariah, her husband, and says, your wife will be uh, with child. She will bear a son. You'll name him John. And Zechariah's like, I'm not so sure that's true. And God says, well, I'll prove it. He's like, she's old. He's like, yeah, I know you are too, but I'll do it. And he gives this promise to Elizabeth. And Elizabeth conceives, verse 24 of chapter 1. She conceived and for five months kept her health herself hidden, saying, the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. This is Elizabeth, pregnant with this child, and this child is John the Baptist. And God described John the Baptist as one who would be great before the Lord. He would be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he would turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So God gives Elizabeth a child who is going to get the way ready for the, Holy spirit, for, the, for the Messiah, for the Son of God to come. That's one person in this story. And then we have another woman in this story. We have... The woman Mary, she also receives a miraculous word and work of God. An angel appears to her and, and tells her that she has found favor with God and she will conceive in her womb and bear a son. He will call his name Jesus. He will be great and be called the son of the most high. And Mary goes, how can that happen? How can that be? I'm a virgin. And the angel 
tells her the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. So Mary, this unmarried yet engaged teen, teenage girl, and a virgin, realizes that she will conceive a child in her womb from the Holy Spirit. And God reveals to Mary that Elizabeth, her relative, is also expecting and pregnant. It's an amazing thing. So these, these two women, one old and barren, past the age of childbearing, one young and a virgin, are both pregnant by God's power and work. And, and as they learn about that, they receive much encouragement and support from one another. So Mary, she travels, verse 39. Here we'll get into our passage. In those days, Mary arose. After hearing this word and, and receiving God's grace and work in her life, she arose and went with haste. So as soon as she got the message, she hurried out into the hill country to a town in Judah. She made a 90-mile journey, most likely, to her relative's house, to Elizabeth's house, and, and Luke tells us that she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. She's on her way to find out, okay, the angel told me that my relative Elizabeth, this old woman in my life who I love, that she's pregnant with a child. And, and that's a sign that God is faithful in keeping his promises. And so she's thinking, I want to go and see, has God kept his promises? Is this true? So she hurries down to see Elizabeth. She gets there and she enters the house and greets Elizabeth. And as she does so, something physical and amazing happens in Elizabeth's body. The child, verse 40, she entered the house, greeted Elizabeth, and then when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. John just makes this big jump, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a joyful recognition in that moment that Elizabeth is pregnant with child and Mary is pregnant with child as well from the Holy Spirit. And both women can acknowledge right then and there, God is at work. God is doing something amazing in our lives. God is confirming to these two women what he is doing and what he is doing is good and true. And it is the means by which these women are the, the vehicles by which the people by which he is unfolding his redemptive plans. Can you imagine the experience of God's affirmation and activity that these women share? I, I imagine it this way. Every time their families were together, every time Mary and Elizabeth and, and Jesus and cousin John, John the Baptist, were in the room together, they talk about this moment. Do you remember when I showed up on your doorstep and walked in the door and said, Hey, Elizabeth, and, and you, you just greeted me and rejoiced with me and and we knew we were both pregnant and even in fact the baby in you leaped he jumped with joy the boys would be implicated in the memory of this as well I, I can imagine you know one uncle or or maybe aunt mary looking over at john and saying john you just jumped like 30 feet in your mom's womb when i showed up i mean she just appeared and like you lifted her up off the ground it was just amazing now don't don't mishear what is happening it's a really profound thing and a powerful thing for us today about how Mary and Elizabeth interact. They identify where God is at work and they share it with one another. They're, they're just telling each other and exposing each other to the reality that God is doing great and gracious things and we should rejoice in that. And I think that's how we should relate to one another. That's why these discipleship relationships are so important. 
I call this sharing evidences of grace. And every single staff meeting that I have with our team, every time I get our life group leaders together, every month when our worship team gets together and, and we share, the very first thing we do is we, we share these evidences of grace. I ask the question, where have you seen God at work in your life? Where have you seen God at work in the ministry that you're doing? I think it's good if you go and you journal some of these things off by yourself. If, if you have those moments and experiences where you see God at work, that you just take some time personally to reflect and record those things. But the benefit of telling one another about these evidences of grace and these works of mercy in your life is so massive. It's one of the benefits of having these discipleship relationships together. Just to say, hey, brother, sister, I've got to tell you how God's been working in my life and my heart and what he's been doing. J.C. Ryle, a 19th century pastor in England, he said it this way. He said, we should always regard communion or fellowship relationship with other believers as an eminent means of grace. It's a refreshing break, he says, in our journey along the narrow way to exchange experience with our fellow travelers. It helps us insensibly, and it helps them, and so it's a mutual gain. It's the nearest approach, he says, that we can make to, on earth to the joy of heaven. You should have someone in your life, a fellow Christian, that you're discipling and someone that's discipling you that you can sit down with and say, let me tell you where God's at work. Let me share with you the evidences of his grace in my life. Having that discipleship relationship with other believers helps you grow and see God's mercy and his kindness. You know what the Bible doesn't have in it? The Bible doesn't have a Lone Ranger Christian. There's no such thing as the solo journeying on, them, on their own, independent, no strings attached, Christian all by themselves doing their thing, me and Jesus making it to heaven. It's unheard of in Scripture. God gives us the church. He gives us one another. And so again, we should always be thinking about who is discipling me and who am I discipling as we want to see the goodness and grace of God. Who are you experiencing this with? Who are you encouraging to look for these things? Who is encouraging you and discipling you to keep your eyes open for the evidences of God's grace? The first benefit together that we see then of our relationships, these discipleship relationships, is that we experience God together. We see where he's at work. But the second benefit of being in a relationship with others is that in a relationship, in a discipleship relationship with others, we encourage one another. I think this goes one step deeper. It's more than just saying, well, here's where God's been merciful, here's where he's been kind, but now it begins to apply and take these things deeper into our lives. Let's go back to the text here in verse 42. Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. Every time Scripture says that someone is filled with the Holy Spirit, the very next thing is that they begin to speak or they say something. They make a, a proclamation. They're sharing something. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, and in great excitement she speaks, and literally she eulogizes. That is, she speaks highly and favorably of someone, Mary in particular. Now, it seems, uh, we don't have this ex uh, clearly spelled out in the Scripture, but it seems that the Holy Spirit, in some way or another, had disclosed to Elizabeth that Mary was pregnant. 
She figures it out. She proclaims it right away as she sees Mary for the very first time. And furthermore, she gets the fact, she understands that the child that is in Mary's womb is the Son of God. She's ecstatic about God's work and blessing on Mary. Now, think about how encouraging these words would have been to Mary. Put yourself in her shoes for just a moment. Mary is a young, engaged, yet virgin girl, and she's recently discovered she's pregnant because God chose to use her to bring the Messiah into the world. She probably felt maybe a little fearful, perhaps discouraged and overwhelmed, maybe confused. I can imagine there was a significant amount of anxiety even in her heart, even considering the way her reputation would be experienced and lived out in Nazareth. And yet, Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, speaks words that affirm and bless and build her up. She says to Mary, no, you're not down in the dumps. You're not, you're not just somebody to be kicked out of the camp and out of the family, but you are blessed among women. And your, your child, he's someone great. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. Her, her exclamation just carries these four facets. One, she eulogizes or praises Mary. She just says, Mary, you're highly favored above women. She's like, God has just placed you at the front of the line. He's bestowed upon you a, a status and a significance that is amazing. And then she eulogizes the child, the baby, who is the, the Messiah. It's Jesus, the Christ. And she says, the child in your womb, blessed is he. And then she identifies, thirdly, God's grace to her. I mean, Elizabeth just takes a moment to reflect, and she thinks, who am I? Why is this granted to me? Who am I that the mother of my Lord should come and visit me? And that's where she recognizes that this child is the Lord. She, she's saying amazing things. Why? Why would I be a recipient of God's grace? And then she encourages and prompts Mary towards further flourishing. She says, Verse 45, blessed. It's a different word here. It means happy, whole, fulfilled. Happy is the one who believed there would be a fulfillment of what, the, of what was spoken to her from the Lord. She, she basically says to Mary, Mary, I'm so encouraged by the way that you have heard God's word from the angel. You have believed it, and you are walking faithfully with him. There is happiness and fullness in your life because of that. Now, and I take from this interaction together, from this expression from Elizabeth, a posture of two things that should be in our own discipling relationships to encourage each other. This is, this is what should carry out in our speech day after day after day. First of all, we should eulogize each other. That is, we should remember God's grace and his blessings, and we should point out those blessings that point us to God's grace. Bless one another, encourage one another, speak highly of one another, affirm one another. We, we use the term eulogy, particularly at a funeral. Why wait until somebody's dead to encourage them and to point out God's grace and his work in their life? I think that's a little too late, my friends. Mainly because there's a drought of encouragement in our lives today. And no one can be over-encouraged. Our world is full of hate hurt, and bitterness, and anger, and division, and complaint, and criticism, and everything that tears down. 
Now, I'm not advocating for a false flattery, but I am advocating for and encouraging us to encourage and lift up one another because our world is in destroy mode. All across the board, we're taking down one another verbally. Most of the time, it's with people we don't even know, but we just feel that we have the liberty because social media provides us this anonymity and this barrier that we can just say whatever we want about whoever we want. And so much of our language there is filled with hatred. But for the follower of Jesus Christ, it should be different. You and I, as believers in Jesus, have limitless resources to eulogize and to build up one another, to bless one another with our words. That's why I think God gave Christians a tongue to bless those made in the image of God. Not to curse those who are made in the image of God. We have been given a tongue in our mouth to share and to tell others of God's grace and to build them up. And we as followers of Jesus have that grace on our lives in no short supply. Think about it this way. Christ didn't come for you because you were doing great and you needed applause. He didn't come for you because you are just perfectly performing and everyone needs to know how awesome you are. The reality is you and I are so far off the mark. In our, in our sin, and our rebellion, we are so filthy and lost and, and hopeless. You and I have to think of ourselves more like we should think of the thief on the cross next to Jesus who spewed out vile and hate and blasphemy against Jesus. That's really who we are. And yet, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He came to pour a blessing out on us, to take us from the curse of sin to the blessing and favor and life forever with God. So if you struggle to encourage and bless others or, or eulogize them, then, then, friend, look to the cross of Jesus Christ and see what he has done for you. Listen to the word that he speaks towards you, that you are dearly loved by him. And let his grace, let his work, let his mercy warm your heart to encourage and bless others. And if you struggle with that, keep looking at the cross. Keep your eyes on Jesus until your heart gets warm and gets there to be able to encourage others. Eulogize one another. That's one way that we help encourage one another. The second way is that we exhort one another to believe God's promises. Now, this isn't a rebuke or to condemn or to bury someone under the heavy hand of I'm right and you're wrong. To exhort here means simply to, to help someone else remember what is true. Elizabeth helps Mary remember what is true. She says, Mary, you are blessed or happy because you believed what God said. You trusted him. And Do you see the encouragement there? She's saying, great, Mary, great. You trusted God at his word. Keep going, keep trusting him, keep believing him. Exhorting one another is encouraging one another to listen to God's word about our world and our situation and to believe his true and greater promises. It's walking alongside another believer and saying, you know what, I know you hear a lot of things these days. I know the voices are nonstop in this world and they are loud uh, the news media, the internet, the voices in your head, it's all just so deafening. But listen to the greater voice. Listen to the, the better voice. Listen to the voice of God and what he says. 
Now, this, of course, means that you need to know what God says in his word, and you can wisely direct someone else to what he says with maturity. But I think we can each point each other again and again to what God says and encourage each other to believe him. You may just need to tell your friend about who God is, his nature. Just just point out, well, friend, remember, God is faithful. He is gracious. He is good. He is glorious. He never fails at keeping his promises. Keep believing him. We need each other to encourage us. And we need to be encouragers. We need each other to exhort us. And we need to be exhorted. So again, let me ask, who is doing that in your life? Who is discipling you? And who are you doing that for? Who are you discipling? So the first benefit that we have of these discipleship relationships is that we experience God together. And the second benefit is that we encourage one another, but it also means that there's a third benefit for us in that in these discipleship relationships, we can envision God's plan in our lives. You just have to step back and ask the big question of this passage and this experience with Mary and Elizabeth. What is God doing in the lives of these two pregnant women? I mean, one is past the age of bearing children, and the other is a virgin, teen, engaged girl. What is God doing in this moment? He's unfolding his redemptive plans in the world. So now Mary gets a chance to speak up. The story pivots to her words, and we we read in verse 46 that she says, she exalts, she praises, and she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. She sings this amazing prayer about the faithfulness and work of God. I'll save the deep dive of the content of this prayer in verses 46 to 55 for another sermon, But, but the outline of it looks something like this. In verses 46 to 49, Mary exalts or praises God about God's work in her life. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, now, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. He who is mighty has done great things for me. She just sees that God has elevated her and God has done mighty things for her by calling her and choosing her to bear the Son of God. He's bestowed a great blessing on her, and she praises God for that. Secondly, Mary, in verse 50, invites all to fear God, all of us to trust Him. His mercy is for all. And so she says, holy is His name, and His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation, which means our generation today. God's mercy is for you and for me. If we would trust and fear and draw near to Him, His mercy is there for us. It's unending. His greatness. So Mary invites all to fear Him. And then thirdly, in verses 51 to 55, Mary points towards a future. She points towards a future work in which the Messiah will enact His coming. He will make all things new and right. God will fulfill His great and glorious purposes because God is faithful. He will come, the Messiah will come and bring down the mighty and exalt the humble and fill the hungry. He will help Israel. He will remember His mercy. He will remember his promises. By speaking and sharing this with Elizabeth, we're seeing a mutual reminder between Mary and Elizabeth and a focus on God's promises and work in Christ. And I think it's important here just in what Mary's doing for us to consider what is God doing in our lives today? In this moment, in in your life, even in this week, what is God doing? 
Now, on one hand, I could agree with John Piper when he says, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. But I want to be aware of those three. I'm sure you do too. So how do we know what those are? That's why these discipleship relationships are necessary and helpful as Christians. With our, with our Bible open and our relationship, our community together, we can see and envision the work of God in our lives, in the here and now, and in the world, in the world to come. Friends, it's when we get alone, when we get off to ourselves, that we get in danger of missing what God is doing. It's when we find ourselves alone that we are in danger and we can't see well. Now, note the last verse here, verse 56. Mary remained with Elizabeth about three months and then returned home. That, that tells us something significant. Mary and Elizabeth stayed together in community. I believe that that was a discipling, thriving relationship between the two of them for that three-month time. It was an intensive discipleship ministry. And I think that probably this song was something that Elizabeth and Mary reflected on often together in the three months that Mary was there. And it provides for us a template of how we could disciple one another, how we can help each other envision what God is doing, and it may be a helpful structure for you in a discipling relationship. So first of all, talk about God's work in the past. What has God done in your life? Where are the ways, where are the things, where are the places that He has been faithful? What has God done in your life, and, and who is He? As you, as you share your life with someone that you're discipling or that is discipling you, look back and see what has God done. Note that, mark that, encourage each other with that. And then talk about what God is doing right now in your, in your midst, in your present life. How is God's grace hitting home in your need right at this moment? Where is God's mercy being applied? Share those experiences and those things from God's word where you're saying, you know what, I see God at work here. I see him doing this. And then thirdly, talk about God's work in the future. What is God doing in the world? What are his global purposes and promises? What is God seeking to do in my life in the future and accomplish? And how are you living in partnership with him in his purposes? The next Sunday, we're starting a new series in the last book of the Bible in Revelation to go through the last four chapters. So we're going to get a clear view of what God is doing in the world and in his purposes for all nations. It's going to be great. But in that, we can also look and see. So come back next Sunday, have your Bible ready and open, but come back and say, all right, what is God doing in the future and how can I be a part of him in his purposes? Who is discipling you? And who are you discipling? Maybe the other way to ask it is, why are you here? What do you have to offer someone else? And, and why is the person across the room who you don't even know, probably don't even know their name, but you, you see them across the room, again, look around, see these people, why are they here? What do they have to offer you? What do you have to offer them? Why is that particular person in your life group with you in that community? And why are you there in that community with them? Why has God brought us together? The answer is to build us up in Christ so that we become like Him. So again, I'll ask you, who are you discipling? And who is discipling you? That person that you need to be a discipler in your life, 
They might be here today. They probably are. Would you, would you open up? Would you reach out? Would you seek to grow? You need help being connected with someone that can disciple you? Come talk to me. I'll help you in that. And the person that needs you, they might also be here today as well. Will you open up your heart and life? Will you be willing to be a disciple maker and help someone else become more like Jesus? We all need a discipleship relationship. We all need a Paul. We all need need a Timothy. We all need an Elizabeth, and we all need a Mary. It's how the church grows together and how we see Christ and his work in our lives and how we remember the gospel. So one more time, who are you being discipled by? And who's discipling you? Let's pray.